There's a story of the woman at the Super Bowl with an empty seat next to her. And the guy in the next seat over was kind of shocked to see an empty seat at the Super Bowl. And um, so he said, man, what, you know, uh, do you know whose seat that is? Oh, that's my husband's seat. And uh, oh, where is he? And uh, he passed away. And, and they, he said, oh, I'm so sorry. And, but the curiosity kind of got there. Did, did, didn't you have any family member, you know, uh, that could come and take the seat? And she said, yeah, uh, well, why didn't they come and uh, take it? She said, beats me. They, they, th- they insisted on going to the funeral instead. <laughs> Ooh, ouch. Priorities can very easily be put out of whack if you're not careful uh, in life. It's, it's amazing how we can do that to ourselves. We, we get our priorities tweaked and twisted and things that we think are so important. And sometimes it's helpful to step back and say, Lord, would you reprioritize our lives? And, and that's really what the book of Haggai is about. The children of Israel had lost sight of the proper priorities. And so the prophet Haggai comes along with a, sort of an, a word to the wise and a challenge to the people. Um, and it had to do, as we learned on Sunday, if you missed Sunday, we kind of did really, uh, whether we know it or not, kind of an introduction to what the book of Haggai is about. Uh, and it really is focused upon the temple uh, and temple worship and that season of time where the children of Israel uh, had threats and their temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And now it's time for them to rebuild the temple. Um, and it sort of took a little bit of a lighting of a fire under the children of Israel to get them going to do the work of the temple. Um, it's interesting because, um, you know, when our priorities are out of whack, sometimes the Lord has to use uh, means that can be kind of brutal to get us back onto what matters. Um, it's amazing what will reset your priorities, I've noticed. Uh, and I've been around, you know, church people and church life a lot. But um, I'll tell you, uh, there's nothing like a funeral that will change your priorities. Have you ever been to a funeral, especially if it's of a, a, a loved one, someone who's really close to you? Um, it's, it's amazing how you can almost start to think, man, nothing really else matters other than your relationship with the Lord. Heaven and hell, are you ready to go? Do you know where you're gonna go? Um, and I found that memorial services and funerals are a good time to present the gospel just because, you know, you, it, when you do a memorial service and you see a person at the end of their life and, and, and what it was all about, it can seem either really shallow and kind of embarrassing, or it can seem really weighty and eternal. And that's the question you might wanna ask yourself tonight. What, what eternal value does your life hold today? Because, you know, I've done funerals where, boy, that guy, man, he could tie a fly like no other. He spent all his time on Sunday mornings tying flies. Now, tying flies is great. If that's your hobby, awesome, it's amazing. Um, but if that's all you got in life and people, that's all they say about you at the end of your life, how much of that? Well, the fish probably care. But most people kind of don't care that much about a lot of the things we spend our time doing, our hobbies, the things that we do for enjoyment. Um, but when eternity is facing us, what are the things that matter most? And that's where the children of Israel are off course. They've, they've let their priorities get on the temporal or the temporary and they have neglected the eternal. And uh, man, but I'll tell you, there's, there's some memorial services I've done where the person affected so many lives. Um, you know, led people to Christ, encouraged people with scripture, 
counseled them in godly ways, raised up godly children, raised up godly grandchildren. Um, and they left a, a huge legacy that is huge and important and valuable and weighty. But, um, but the question is, where are you at? That's really what we have to ask ourselves. Now, the reason this really is appropriate for ourselves and our life to ask the question, you said, Brett, it's about the temple in Jerusalem. What does that have to do with us? Well, don't forget the, the, the temple, um, there's, there's a picture in the temple. And actually there's three pictures the Bible gives us when, it, when we talk about the temple. Um, the first temple picture that we have is of course our bodies. And we looked at that on Sunday, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God and you are not your own. So this idea of your body being a temple, you can sort of superimpose Haggai and its priorities on the temple to be sort of a, a, a question about your inner self, your inner man or human being. Um, and are, is your body a temple that the Lord is at home in and dwelling at? That's a good question. The second thing, when we look at the temple, it's also not only our bodies, but it's also a type, a picture of Christ's body. The, um, not only the body of Christ corporately, as we use that term so uh, regularly in the church, but also Christ's literal body. Remember when Jesus was there? Um, and uh, he was on the temple mount when he said this, John chapter two, verse 19, Jesus answers them to destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was talking about his body, uh, which would be crucified on the cross and then raised up from the grave. Um, but then also the temple, uh, not as much of a picture, but it literally was uh, a place of worship. The temple is a place where God is worshiped. And that's true in your body, in Christ's body, and a, pla and a place of worship. They should all be temples where, where worship ascends. So when, when we're studying this book of Haggai, make, make sure we, um, we're kind of keeping the back of our minds that the temple is a picture of these three main things all throughout scripture. Um, so the problem of Haggai, Haggai's time was uh, keeping their priorities straight, specifically concerning the temple. They were more focused on their own homes and their own personal comfort. Um, and uh, they were uh, worried more about just, you know, their, their, how their houses looked actually. Um, you know, it's interesting. There was a study done recently of an older gen, uh, uh, demographic and they asked a bunch of older folks, you know, um, if you could do things over again, what would you do differently? And um, it's interesting, the, the, the main uh, three items they came away with, with an older crowd, they said they would reflect more, a little more reflection on who they were, what they were doing, all that. But number two, they would risk more, as it turns out. And, um, and then thirdly, they would do something that would live on long after they were gone, something that would sort of leave something lasting and what have you. Um, you know, it's interesting uh, how much time we spend in our lives doing stuff. Um, there's studies that have been done on this and the most of your time, other than being awake, you spend in bed uh, 33 years of your life on the average. If you live to be 79 years old on average, you'll spend 33 years in bed. That, can I just uh, suggest get a good mattress? I mean, if you spend that much time, you should probably make sure to have a good mattress. If you're gonna invest in something, um, that might be a good thing to think about. Mattress, I'm not a mattress salesman, but I'm just saying. Um, 33 years in bed, you spend 26 years in, uh, of the 33 years sleeping, uh, seven years trying to sleep. That's on average. Now, I know some of you are probably uh, uh, maybe give or take on that one. Uh, but um, uh, as it uh, turns out, you'll spend 14 years and four months working 
uh, at work, which is uh, quite a bit less than sleeping as it turns out, but some of you guys do both at the same time. Um, <laughs> 11 years, uh, uh, four months with screen time. <laughs> 11 years, four months screen time, that's a long time. Eight years, four months of television. So screen time is your iPhone and your uh, iPad and stuff like that. But, but just watching TV, eight years, four months on average. Three years of your life on average. I'm sure this has changed. Of course, this is, this is current information, but three years on social media. I don't know how that um, counts for some. I think, I, I think some of our children have already done that before they're 12. Um, but anyway, um, four and a half years eating food. Uh, that's definitely wrong. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> six years of your life traveling, three and a half years in leisure, uh, one and a half year exercising. Uh, again, that's probably dependent on who you are. Um, four years being sick in your life. That's interesting, four years being sick. Two years putting on clothes. That's a long time to put on clothes uh, in, in the morning. Um, uh, but here was the shocker on the study um, on the average of this, you know, people that they polled and tested and all that, um, half of a year of their life would be average spending on practicing people's faith. Just a half a year. Uh, you spend, it's amazing when you think about, you know, um, you know, four years of being sick or, or two years of putting on clothes. You spend four, two, four more times putting on clothes than you do spending seeking the Lord and exercising your faith. Um, that's on the average. Um, but the question you might ask in this life where you've been given a, a certain you know, amount of time, you know, how are you spending that time? Are we spending our time wisely and do we have our priorities straight? That's where the prophet uh, Haggai comes on the scene during the time of Ezra and Zerubbabel. Um, and, um, and really he's gonna say something here that's very much uh, the same thing we read in Ezra, the book of Ezra. We saw a little bit of that on Sunday. Um, and, um, and you might say, well, Brett, if Ezra says the same thing that Haggai says, um, why should we have the book of Haggai? Because Ezra is a much more detailed rendition of everything Haggai is talking about. Well, it's detailed, but um, Ezra is the nuts and bolts of the story, sort of the narrative of the story, where Haggai kind of focuses on the concept um, of, of um, their priorities as it related to the temple. Um, you know, and so the concept, something we might've missed in the book of Ezra, Haggai gives us the exact days that he's writing and he gets very detailed um, in his prophecy time, but then he gets very philosophical about why they should be given to the building of the temple. And so Haggai focuses on that more than Ezra. But Ezra and Haggai go hand in hand, those two books, just FYI. It's kind of fun to read the book of Ezra and then read the book of Haggai because they're so linked um, and all that. Um, the book of Haggai comes with four major sections um, where the, Lord, the word of the Lord comes to Haggai. Uh, four different times. And, and you might delineate these times because he does to uh, months of the year. He says, so, you know, in this first one, we're gonna see the word one from the Lord is from September. Uh, he even, you know, gives us, uh, you know, we know the year and everything when this word came to Haggai. But he, he says, I got a word in September. I got a word in October. Got a word in December. That's the way he uh, delineates his words from the Lord. So that's what we'll do. So the first word of the Lord is here in chapter one, verse one. And we're gonna see uh, this first section of Haggai, the charge that Haggai makes or levels toward the children of Israel. So, so um, verses one through 11 is the charge that he makes. And then we'll see the change in verses 12 through 15 in chapter one. So first the charge. 
It says in verse one, in the second year of Darius, the king in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, It is time for you, O ye, to dwell in your circled house, uh, your sealed, I should say, houses, and this house lie waste. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. The word on the street was, yeah, we don't need to build the temple. Uh, we can do that later. We got all kinds of time to build the temple. So now is not the time, the, in verse two, to build um, the house of the Lord. But Haggai says, now is the time. You guys dwell in your sealed houses. What's the word sealed? Um, in the King James, it's a word um, that we might call it wainscoting <laughs> or shiplap or whatever covers a wall in its uh, original structure. Now, by the way, in Bible times, people were really into this, especially in the fancy houses. Um, I'd like to show you a video that I brought from uh, Ephesus, which is uh, part of Bible land. This is where Paul preached the gospel. And um, I took a group of Athe Greekers uh, to Turkey uh, a few years back and we got to go through Ephesus. And Ephesus was perhaps the most incredible archeological ruin I'd ever seen in my life. And I've seen a lot of archeological ruins, but this one was most impressive. But um, when you walk around Ephesus, you, you realize this was a huge city. Um, and um, you know there was the, there's a structure they call the library. This right here, that's a, the facade of the, uh, the front of the building that was there. This amphitheater that's there at Ephesus was was um, where Paul had the riot start of the silversmiths. Remember that? And a bunch of people were getting freaked out because Paul was preaching the gospel and everybody was becoming Christians. But in the houses, and this is where we shot some of this footage. See those chunks on the wall? Those are marble walls they put on. They, they you know, made mud buildings and they put marble. And those are like the original chunks they're trying to preserve. And then some of the rooms had these mosaics and also um, frescoes that they would cover all these little brick walls and make them look very fancy and marbled floors. And this was typical, this, of, of a, this was a house. This was not a fancy temple. This was somebody's house that we're looking at. That's the goddess Nike, by the way, uh, that the people of Ephesus were worshiping. We still worship Nike today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but be that as it may, some of these, uh, I mean, these, you, you think of these people in the, you know, 2000 years ago were barbaric, you know, people, but these people lived large and fancy. They had saunas and, uh, you know, they had uh, jacuzzis and stuff like that in their houses. But, but like, you can see these fresco type uh, painting surfaces, they'd plaster and paint. And it's amazing how those have lasted for a couple thousand years, just uh, uh, as they were sitting in those days, really beautifully uh, shown. And the reason I show you Ephesus, it's not really Judea, but, it, but this is the kind of stuff you see even in Judea. This is just some of the footage we had from Ephesus. But, um, but Judea and even Masada, when you go up to Masada, when I, I was talking about that fortress palace up in Israel that Herod the Great built, uh, they had these same kinds of frescoes and uh, different uh, paintings and surfaces and stuff. That's what the Bible talks about here. When, when, when Haggai says, you guys have your fancy houses that are covered with all these fancy ornate uh, you know, coverings, but the temple just sits there in ruin. 
That's the, the charge that is leveled here at the people. And, and uh, he says, man, what do you got your house all fancy while the house of God lies in waste? Um, Therefore, consider your ways, consider your ways. Um, uh, let's consider the word consider just for a second. Um, the word consider, if you look it up in Webster's, it means to think very carefully, number one definition, but number two, to think about and be drawn toward um, that is specifically taking a, consider taking a course of action. And that's the word, and, and the Hebrew word matches up with this English word nicely. Just that he's really saying, you know, you guys need to do something about this and think through it. Because if you don't think about it, out of sight, out of mind, if you don't think about it, you're not, you're not caring about something that actually um, matters. Um, you know, you live comfortably, but my house lies in waste. This was the heart of the Lord for the people of Israel at that time. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm kind of glad we don't still do temple worship as they did in those days. Can you imagine? You know, us having to bring our lamb from our, you know, barnyard that's uh, spotless and bring it to have it slaughtered there at the temple and the priest, you know, having you put your hand on the head of the lamb and then, you know, the priest hands on the altar and then uh, the priest slits the throat of the lamb and like, you'd be a part of all that stuff. And this was the sacrifice uh, for sin. Uh, can you imagine on our Wednesday night Bible study? Yeah, come on in, uh, all the sheep over there and we'll, we'll be uh, doing that over there and then we'll finally get to the Bible study once we've done all our sacrificing. I'm glad that we're no longer under that temple worship that they had in those days. But you can almost wonder, maybe the people are like, yeah, why? maybe we don't wanna get back to all that, the rigmarole of being a part of you know, um, you know, the temple and the temple worship. Um, people do that today. I don't think we need to be part of the church. Now, I'm preaching to the choir. We've got a church here who piles in on a Wednesday night Bible study. That's what a good problem to have. We have a packed house on a Wednesday night. Um, and so I'm really, I'm not talking to you guys, but I am talking to those, maybe they're watching online that have not gone back to church since the coronavirus thing. And as it turns out, there's quite a statistic out there where um, most of the church in America, people are not returning back. Um, a lot of the pastors that I talk to don't have the problem we have here at Athey Creek. They're, they're still at 30% of their congregation pre-COVID. Most of the pastors I know, and even some of the big churches, uh, they're still kind of chugging away, but they're, they're, they're not, there's nothing like what they had before. And so while these people weren't building the temple, we need to make sure that we're doing what the Lord asks us to do and not neglecting the gathering of the church. In some ways, you can correlate the, the temple in Jerusalem with what the church is doing, the gathering, the place of meeting. Um, and you guys know Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, is where the Bible doesn't give us this out, coronavirus or not. <clears throat> it says, uh, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Um, is anybody else shocked at seeing the people that are still masked up to the nines? Oh, I feel so bad for people. We've been unmasked for a couple of years and we're the healthiest people I know. Um, please watch the news. And, and they're even the, the other side of the argument is now saying, yeah, we probably shouldn't have locked down. Yeah, masks probably aren't uh, that helpful. And yeah, the healthiest state in the United States was Utah, which was the most unlocked down state. New Jersey was the most locked down state and it was the sickest. And they're showing the science now. It's not just some opinion now. They're showing the science that the lockdown actually hurt. Uh, the, the pandemic as far as people being sick and even dying. 
uh, let alone we were arguing, well, the psychology of it and people just need to go to church. And you know, we've always had to deal with sickness and stuff. But, but as it turns out, uh, th- those that said, uh, we need to just live our lives, uh, they're being proven right. Uh, this, this, this rebellion is aging well, uh, that, that some people thought we were so horrible. We had people leave our church. We had staff members leave our church. You're, you guys are not being safe. You don't love people. You don't care about people because you're meeting and you're gathering and there's not you know six feet of distance. And the whole thing was really, really kind of goofy if you really just look at it. Like the little visqueen tents in front of restaurants, we're gonna make everybody healthier. Um, uh, like I, I went to a bunch of restaurants like that and man, people out there shivering in the cold and you know, coughing on each other outside. Meanwhile, there's a perfectly warm, nice restaurant, clean on the inside. Um, and you know what's funny is I've got a, a, a phrase, I'm not sure if I coined it, I, I might have, but um, I call it uh, Corona laziness. There's some restaurants that haven't reopened. Um, because it's, it's cheaper and easier. Just do the drive-through. Uh, keep people out of your restaurant. It makes it easier. I mean, it's amazing to me that there's still people kind of using the exam, you know, there's, they're using, oh, well, we gotta keep people out, even though it's kind of a thing of the past largely. Um, but if you're still masked up and saying, I can't go to church, I can't be around all those people, you are living in fear and it's totally unfounded. The healthiest people I know are the people that are here on church on Sunday morning. And we're all rubbing elbows and passing germs and we're enjoying it. Um, it's, it's, and man, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> and and um, man, come out of the hole. It's like, I feel like it's that, you know, those movies of the people that went down in the nu- nuclear bumper, bunker, but nothing really happened. And they were under there for 20 years and they come out, you know, is, is anybody alive? We're out here doing the same thing we did before. It's like, um, yeah, come on out. Stop jogging with your mask on. Uh, stop, stop driving your car alone with your mask on. Like, like that's so painful. I, I, I'm embarrassed for people now. It's, it's gotten to a level where you're like, oh my, it's so embarrassing. Please. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm actually, uh, I, I really do sense as a pastor in our community um, that people are living in that spirit of fear, not of love and power and of sound mind. We're not supposed to live in fear. And that, that's just, what we're seeing is just unadulterated fear that has just taken grip, grip many, many people. And the Lord would not have you live that way. Um, I would rather, <laughs> I know some of you, this makes you afraid even to hear this, but I'd rather die uh, than to walk around living in total fear for my life. And every moment, uh, no, time to, time to just say, you know what, uh, that, that was a wrong narrative. And uh, they, they sold that hook, line, and sinker, and people are still masking up. Um, and it's, it's just really kind of sad. I, I hope you understand that I'm not trying to be mean. I'm, I'm really, I really say this out of love for the congregation. That's my heart. Um, but it's, it's amazing to me. There's still people that are, are afraid to gather in churches. And I would say, if you're at home, go back to church um, and, uh, and be a part of a congregation where we're uh, gathering in the name of, of Christ. Now, some of you stopped going to church uh, long before coronavirus. And that was just a good excuse. I can't go to church now because of coronavirus. But you were not going to church before. Some of you guys watch it online. Uh, and, and some of you, boy, it's amazing all the things out there. We don't like big churches. We don't like little churches. We don't like this, that, or the other. Uh, it doesn't matter what you like. The Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves um, as uh, is the custom or the, the manner of some. 
So uh, it's interesting, as Christians, by the way, get older, I've noticed they also get jaded toward the things of the Lord. Um, worship, Bible study, new believers. Have you, have you seen the way that is in your own heart? Where the older you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I've been to every Bible study in my life. I already know all the book of Haggai and I've been through this and that. And you can start having this attitude as an older believer. That's kind of where these people were when it came to temple. Yeah, 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 we, we've done all that. We've been through all that stuff with the Jewish temple and sacrifice system, but who needs that? At least we have our houses and our wainscoting and our shiplap. Uh, and they were really happy about that. But the Lord is splashing a cold water on them saying, time to wake up, not be jaded toward the things of the Lord. I hope you're not jaded toward worship. You know, when we gather to sing songs of praise, I hope you're not just standing there, yeah, another, you know, people singing songs. We, we lose the, the, the importance of what we're actually doing. Um, we're there to give the, the glory to the Lord when we sing songs. Um, you know, uh, new believers, oh, that new believer, look at it, they're raising their hands. I used to raise my hands in church. I even used to sway back and forth. And raise, but what a weirdo. Look at that person. Wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. You're evaluating, carry the TV, touch down, uh, you know, over here, dude. Uh, like whatever, whatever, you know, technique. And you're like, I've done all that stuff and I don't need to worry about raising my hands in church. Bible says, Behold, bless the, ye the Lord, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. So lift them however you want. But it says, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Like that's what we're called to do as an act of worship. Um, but I've noticed as Christians get older, they get jaded toward things of worship. And that's kind of what's going on here with the people of Haggai's time. Um, now, don't forget, uh, we went over this on the vision of Athey Creek just a few weeks ago, but I wanna remind you that these are the things that we, the church continued. Uh, and let's just go over this real quick. The apostles' doctrine, that was teaching the Bible. And so I'm thankful that you're here on a Wednesday night going through the Bible. Because this is our, this Wednesday night is the, you know, the bread and butter of Athey Creek, the backbone, the, you know, this, this is the one that I, I think is the weightiest thing we do is the, through the Bible. And then you're not supposed to neglect fellowship. This is where if you're one that says, I like to be in the woods, that's my church. That's just ridiculous if you believe that. The woods are not the church. Uh, the church is people. It's not a building. It's gathering together and having fellowship with other believers. Well, I'm not into fellowship. Then you're not into what God told you to do. You're just a rebellious sinner. And number three, the breaking of bread. <laughs> the breaking of bread. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just telling you like it is. The breaking of bread is probably mostly communion. You're going to the table of the Lord, but it's also having meals together. And we do that on various levels here at Athey. Uh, we we uh, like to encourage people to get together after services and go out and grab a, a meal or a coffee or, or have people over to your house for dinner. Um, and we used to do a lot of potlucks and stuff and then barbecues, but that's become so hard in the size of church that we have. So the break of bread just is such a great thing to contribute to fellowship as it relates to the meals. Um, but uh, that's part of it, communion, but also having meals together. And then the fourth one is prayer, that prayer would be a part of the church. We do that corporately uh, here, uh, each service we pray, but we also uh, pray on Sunday nights. It's an important service where prayer is involved. And then we also encourage uh, your own personal prayer and small prayer groups. We have prayer chains where people in our group pass the, the needs along in the church and pray for long lists of people and things that are going on. These are things that the church should be given to. Um, so all that to say, um, you know, don't make up excuses about why you don't wanna do any of these things. 
Um, that's where the children of Israel were when it came to the building of the temple. Um, and I, I think that's something that we need to kind of press through and fight through. I remember when my sister and brother-in-law, I was so proud of them when they were in the Air Force, Jenny and Corey, um, because they lived in England for several years uh, and um, then moved to North Carolina. And, um, and you know, he was stationed in uh, Riyadh, I think it was in Saudi Arabia during the first Gulf War. But, um, but when they were in the Air Force, you know, they, they had to find churches in these cities that they'd bounce around to, you know, as, as military. And uh, I was so proud of them because they just, they didn't spend, you know, 30 weeks trying to find the perfect church. They found a church that wasn't outside of the pale of orthodoxy. Even if it was a little weird or didn't suit their fancy or wasn't all, you know, dialed in the way they wanted. And they just said, we're gonna not forsake the assembling of ourselves. Uh, they tell a funny story. I think I've mentioned this before where um, they, were, they, they were at this Assembly of God church. And um, normally it was really a pretty solid Bible teaching church and they, they did like it. Um, but once in a while they'd bust out the Holy Ghost stuff, you know, like more so than others. It was usually when the Assembly of God director would come into town, the pastor felt the need to like show things that, oh, the Holy Ghost is moving here. Uh, so let's turn it on this week. Well, my sister uh, had my grandparents who were, were very conservative. Like the whole Assembly of God thing was a little too, you know, wild and, you know, the charismaniac for them. Uh, so my sister was praying, oh Lord, help this Sunday not to be one of those Sundays where they, you know, turn on the juice. Uh, um, well, my grandparents sat down and, and Jenny and Corey, they were visiting, you know, in from out of town and, and the, the pastor wrote, today we're gonna see the Holy Spirit move. Jenny's like, oh no. And then, and then the pastor said, brother on the trombone, prophesy. And the trombone guy said, it's like the guy didn't know how to play the trombone. Uh, but he was prophesying through the trombone. There's a biblical behavior for you. Um, but uh, prophesying through the trombone. There, that, I'm not sure there was a lot of edification, exhortation, or comfort coming from that trombone. Jenny said it made your ears hurt. Um, but, um, but, you know, I, I still admire my sister and brother-in-law because they said, that, hey, we're, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, even if there are some funny things going on. And that's, that's what you all have to do. If you move to another town, uh, I would say, first of all, think about it before you move. Some of you have to move because uh, job situations, totally understand that. Um, but plant yourself somewhere. Yeah, well, Brad, it's not like Athey Creek. Well, there, there's, Athey Creek's a unique church. And uh, you're, it's gonna be hard to find the exact replica of Athey Creek. Uh, they could never find a pastor quite so ugly. So they, right there, you're having a hard, hard time. But uh, no, uh, just plug in, be a part of a church, find a church that's Christ-centered, focused on the word. Uh, it might have the wrong personality or the wrong flavor, but those things are negotiable. You don't have to uh, camp out on those. So um, now before we get into the meat of some of this, hey, I know I'm hemming and hawing here, but I need you to see the Lord predicted that this would happen. And he warned about it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And I wanna point that out before we read on. It's Deuteronomy, jot this down in your notes. In Deuteronomy chapter eight, uh, verses 11 through 14, listen to what the Lord said through Moses um, about when they would go into the promised land. Check this out. It says, beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God and not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, lest, when thou hast eaten and are full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein. And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thy heart be lifted up. That's pridefulness, by the way. Thy heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. 
You see, um, this is the warning. Man, when you get your fancy houses and everything, don't forget the Lord. That, what a somber word hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago before the people of Haggai were even around, but that's exactly where they were at. But sadly, this is exactly where we are at thousands of years later where um, there's so many people that could care less about their spiritual walk with the Lord and being obedient to God's word, but they sure care about their financial portfolio and their house and their uh, jobs and what, what all that stuff. It's, it's what hap- was happening in, in Haggai's time and God caught up, um, uh, they, they um, caught up with him and said, you guys are failing in this. Um, by the way, um, in this story uh, in Haggai, what made the people stop building the temple? Because they did start it, but it wasn't finished. Um, what made them stop is an interesting question. And um, if you would just jot down what made the people stop and then next to it, Ezra chapter four and five. I'd like to read you a few uh, scriptures in Ezra. Remember these two books go hand in hand, but listen, these are the reasons they stopped building. Um, I'll just give, you, give them to you. Ezra four verses one through six says this. It says, now when the adversaries of Judah, the enemy, uh, and Benjamin heard that the children of captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel. Then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the builders, uh, the fathers, and said unto them, uh, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. <laughs> These are the enemies saying, hey, can we help? We wanna seek your God just like you. Yeah, right. And we wanna do sacrifice to him since the days of Esar Adon, the king of Ashur, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua uh, and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel as the King Cyrus, the King of Persia had commanded us. So um, they spotted it out. They knew the enemies were wanting to get in there to help them so that they could defeat them. And so they, they said, get out. We don't want you to be a part of our, our building project. Well, then if you fast forward to Ezra chapter four, verse 11, listen to this. So then they wrote a letter um, and this went to Artaxerxes, who was back, uh, meanwhile, back in the Medo-Persian empire. Um, basically it said, thy servants, the men of Israel, this side of the river, um, it says, be it known to the king that the Jews, which came up from thee to us to come to Jerusalem, are building the rebellious and the bad city and have set up walls thereof and joined the foundations. Be it known now to the king that, this, that if the city be builded and the walls set up again, then they will not pay their toll or tribute or custom so that thou shalt in, in, uh, in damage the revenue of the kings. A false letter was written to the king, uh, uh, Artaxerxes back at the Medo-Persian. Remember, they were given the commandment to go and rebuild and restore. So they were doing that. But the letter by these bad guys said, these guys are doing this in rebellion. They wanna go and fight you guys. That's why they're building their walls and their temple. Now, when the letter got to King Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter four, verse 23 and 24, it says, now the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimei the scribe and their companions. And they went up in haste to Jerusalem and to the Jews and made them to cease by force and by power. They stopped their building project um, and then ceased the work of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. So it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. You see, Ezra tells us all the details. Why did they stop? Why did they stop building? Because of fear. The government 
and there was lies about what they were doing. And so they said, man, we don't wanna be in trouble with uh, Artaxerxes way back in the Babylonian era area. And so they just stopped and the building ceased. Um, and then verse one of chapter five of Ezra, then the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, both same contemporaries, the son of Idu, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the Lord God of Israel, even to them. So after they stopped building, that's where Haggai and Zechariah come in to say, guys, gotta start building again. But they were afraid because of the government uh, coming down on their head. This is an interesting thing because I think there's still churches today that are afraid of the government and they're not willing to do that which God's called us to do. Uh, Well, they told us we couldn't do it. Um, I think there's a day coming. I think this coronavirus thing was just a test to see how much, how quickly we'd be willing to cave and shut her down, uh, you know, long-term shut down. And, and man, I, I'm kind of shocked. One of the things that shocked me was this letter that most of the pastors locally are signed uh, of their undying support for Kate Brown. Uh, we will do whatever you ask us to do. Uh, and they were doing this to sort of show how nice they were and how loving and thoughtful Um, The reason we didn't sign that is we don't sign our undying support to Kate Brown or anyone for that matter, except for we we sign our undying support for the Lord and his word. And um, it's not like we're trying to be unloving. We're actually just saying there's a higher power than Kate Brown as it turns out. Um, And I actually care about that. Uh, And so uh, um, it's just sad to see what happened with that whole thing long-term. It was kind of sad, it still is sad but I, I, I'm concerned about what's the next one? What's the next thing that's coming? Um, and I think we should mentally and spiritually and prayerfully be prepared for whatever is coming next. Um, hopefully the next time, maybe this sort of separate, separates the men from the boys, pardon the pun. Um, but I feel like the, there's a lot of, um, the, the you know, churches have been kind of divvied up and divided and uh, maybe the next time around, the, 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 the true church is gonna be strengthened. But the woke church and the not so true church, that's, it's only gonna be pummeled next time around. I'm, I'm concerned about that, I'm saddened by that. But uh, I think there's been lines drawn in the sand and that was just, the coronavirus thing was just a little dress rehearsal in my opinion, we'll see. Um, so you say, Brett, can we finish Haggai? Yes, uh, Haggai <laughs> chapter one. Uh, but I'm just giving you all the background here. Um, Okay, so by the way, one thing we learned in what I read there in Ezra 5.1, that Zechariah and Haggai are also contemporaries. And, um, and Haggai's gonna handle more of the practical, quick, fast, uh, right to it kind of things about the rebuilding of the temple. When we get in Zechariah here in a, a week or so, we're gonna see that Zechariah is more mystical, a, a, a person of real depth. And we're gonna see that in Zechariah, a very different take on the whole thing. But um, I love that, uh, that each of these guys, Haggai and Zechariah, are both equipped to do it kind of differently. I love the, the textures of, of the different personalities and people in the church. Haggai, I want you to kind of notice his personality here. Um, so uh, back to Haggai, verse, uh, verse six, it says, um, after consider your ways, it says, verse six, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but there, uh, there's no uh, warmth. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Does this sound familiar? Man, with inflation today, uh, you put your check in the bank and ka-ching, it's gone. 
Like it's amazing how uh, this, now what, what's interesting about this is, um, th- is this the condition of America where we've been given so much, but we feel so empty? We have food to eat more than any other, well, it's changing now. I mean, I guess our president told us we're gonna have a food shortage, who knows? But you know, we've been given so much, but Americans are so empty. Um, and I, I, I have to say, you know, I, I worry about our Gen Zers and our young people because there's, there's more suicide, there's more dissatisfaction and discontentment in our young people, and they have everything that they'd ever want. Um, in, in so many ways, we're kind of shocked, and, and a lot of them are like, yeah, it's not enough to have food and clothes and a house and all that, and they're still very dissatisfied. You know, and discontentment can come to even the most wealthy of people, and often that's the person it targets. It's amazing how people that are in real need find real contentment. Um, it's amazing to me. Um, but that's the problem. These people have their houses dialed. They got their uh, vineyards all up and running and all this stuff, but they're finding no real contentment because they're not uh, focusing on the Lord. Um, what, what is it that the Lord has placed, placed on your heart to do, but you've not done it? And, and it might be one of the reasons you're so discontented. Are you discontented with life and your house and your job and your situation? Because, and, and you even recognize that, man, most people in the world would be thrilled to have my job and my house and my situation. What's wrong with me? And if you feel that way, one of the questions you need to ask yourself is, is there something God has asked you to do that you've just not done? That's the whole thing with Haggai. These people are discontented, but they've got their houses that are all fancied up and they're, they've got their farms and the money's pouring in the bag, but the bag has holes and it's, it's just not meeting them where they really want to be met. And so... Uh, Haggai is saying, man, the Lord has called you to do something, but you've failed to do it. And that's why verse six is true. Um, You're not finding any uh, food that fills you up, drink that fills you up. There's nothing that's clothes that keep you warm. You're dissatisfied with all the things you've had. So he goes on in verse seven. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. There it is again, that word consider. Think through it to action. Consider your ways, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house and I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Uh, By the way, anybody know where the wood would come from for this? Lebanon, same place that that Solomon got it hundreds of years earlier. And the reason I say that, that, that's quite a logging operation, um, hauling that wood from Lebanon to Jerusalem. Like it wasn't an easy task. And, And what the Lord's asking isn't for them just to build a little temple. It's like, they got some work to do. But the Lord says, get started, let's go. The reason you're discontented is you're leaving something undone that I've asked you to do. And, uh, and, and that's, that's the question. Did the Lord ask you to do something, teach Sunday school, jump in and help out or go on a mission or around the world and, or, or, or even just go to church, um, maybe to start making Wednesday night a priority or like what does the Lord put on your heart that you kind of said, ah, I'm not really gonna do that. And then you, we wonder, why, why am I so discontented with life? Hmm. Well, verse nine, it says, you looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow up on it. <laughs> what? What did the Lord do? He blew it up? Um, well, look at your margin, it says, uh, blow it away. <laughs> In other words, it's like the stuff that you brought home that was valuable, it blows away like chaff in the wind is the idea there. Um, why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste. 
and you run every man to his own house. Therefore, the heaven over you is stayed from dew and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon all that the ground bringeth forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of the, of the hands. Uh, interesting that um, the Lord was just saying, yeah, your gardens, your fruit of your vineyard is not gonna be good. Uh, part of it's because of not having rain, but the Lord says, I'm just not gonna, you know, your miracle grow is gonna work in the wrong. It's like when I try to garden, uh, things just don't grow. Debbie goes out there and touches our little, you know, raised beds and boom, flourishing with fruit and vegetables. Uh, I have the brown thumb. She, everything I plant turns brown and she, everything she plants turns green. Well, that was the problem. The children of Israel, they were planting their gardens, but it just wasn't being fruitful. And the Lord says, I'm not gonna bless that not gonna bless it until you do what I've called you to do. Um, so it's interesting, because of disobedience, you're not gonna prosper, and so the Lord sends a drought. Um, are we too busy, baby, to focus on what the Lord's called us to do? We're busy working. And I've noticed there's a vicious cycle that takes place where a person starts to feel discontented, they see their crops aren't working, or your job's not successful, or everything seems like it's going haywire. So instead of doing what God's called you to do and be, you just work harder at the same thing. And you keep trying to, somebody laughed at that one. Like, I've been there, done that. <laughs> I've been there. Uh, or you just work harder at that thing to try to get it to succeed, you know. Um, but are we too busy to focus on the Lord? The truth is we're too needy not to focus on the Lord and do what his word tells us to do. Um, don't make that mistake of throwing hard, harder work at bad work. Just, and it's not gonna be blessed until we hear what the Lord is charging us to do and telling us what to do. So I told you Haggai chapter one, verses one through 11 is the, the, um, the charge. And that's what Haggai says, man, stop doing the work on your house. Let's get the house of the Lord built. Until you do that, you're gonna be in drought and poverty and, and you're gonna be discontented. So that's the first thing. The second section of this chapter is, uh, the first one's called the charge. The second section is now the change, verses 12 through 15. It says here in verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the, uh, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people did fear before the Lord. Interesting, here in verse 12, um, it, not just fear the Lord, but um, there's an interesting thing you miss in the Hebrew of verse 12 that you might jot in your notes next to it. It's not that they just had a healthy fear of the Lord, that's great, but they feared in the presence of the Lord. It's like the Lord was there and they had a sense as they were getting back to the building of the temple that God was there and they had a fear of the presence of the Lord, which is kind of interesting. Um, by the way, um, uh, have you ever, was, wasn't there a book called Practicing the Presence of the Lord? Like I forget, was that the title of it? Um, but it, it's, an, it's an interesting idea of saying, practice living as if the Lord is in your presence all the time because he is, he's with you all the time. And if you live that with that cognizance, Lord, you are with me right now. Everything I'm doing, you see. And, and uh, you know, practicing living your life 
uh, as if God is right there with you because he really is. That's kind of what's going on here when it says that they, they started to rebuild the temple and it wasn't the, just the Lord they feared, they feared in the presence of the Lord. They had a healthy respect for the presence of the Lord. Verse 13, then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message unto the people saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. Um, man, don't you love that? It's like the Lord, as soon as these people start doing what they're supposed to do, the Lord says, hey, I'm with you. And the Lord is there for them. Um, I love that. Uh, and uh, th- what a good reassuring word that the people finally hear. Verse 14, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the, uh, the son of Shealtiel, uh, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, in the four and 20th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. So chapter, uh, chapter one sort of ends this chapter with the change that was made. They actually started rebuilding and working. They repented from, from those things. Now, I told you that Haggai receives words from the Lord. The first one word was received in September. And by the way, we know the exact date of this because in the first verse we read, it was the, uh, September, the sixth month, the first day of the month um, in the second year of King Darius. And we know that exact date. Uh, it would be 520 BC is the date. September 1st, 520 BC was the chapter one. But now we have the second word of the Lord that comes to Haggai. And like I told you, he um, associates each hearing of the word of the Lord with a month. And this month here, as it turns out in uh, chapter two is the month of October. And he gets this message. And by the way, we're using the Gregorian calendar calendar in our discussion, but uh, they would have of course used the Hebrew calendar, which is a lunar calendar of 360 days a year. So that's a, they wouldn't say October, but I'm just saying it in our time. So verse one of chapter two, it says, in the seventh month, in the one and 20th day of the month, um, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai saying, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the resident of the people saying, who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Um, so so um, you, you already know where this is going if you were with us here on Sunday. I didn't share with you on Sunday that actually uh, Haggai brought up the subject about the temple and which one was better. He says, all you old guys, uh, what do you think of this new temple that we're working on? How, do you, how does it measure up to Solomon's temple? Like he's the one who stirred up this bees nest uh, that happened at the later part of this chapter if you know where it's going. Um, it's almost like he went and found the old guy. Hey, where's old Murray? Murray was here back in, uh, before the, you know, he's in his nineties. Like if you do the math, these guys would have been in their late eighties, early nineties, if they had seen the temple with their own eyes. And during the reign of Solomon, these are the old guys that are there. Uh, hey, somebody get old Murray. We want to hear what he has to say about this. And so they got these guys and that's what's going on here in, uh, in, in um, uh, verses one through three. Yeah, verse four. Um, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. 
Um, man, I love this because um, I've been a part of a few building projects over the years. Uh, whether Southern Oregon when I was younger and, and church stuff and just getting this building and then also working on this phase two. Uh, man, there's, there's many a time you can find yourself getting very discouraged. Um, all the rules and laws and zoning issues and you know the, the stuff that happens. But you know what? Uh, I, I, I have to be reminded, man, when the Lord's in it, he's gonna make it happen. And uh, sure, we gotta work just like they had to do some heavy duty work. But um, that's one of the things, I'm so thankful for um, the various people that we've had and have uh, throughout the years, just helping, getting the work done. It's not easy um, and it's, it's challenging, but um, I'm so thankful that we've always had really great people helping us with the building issues and people that know what they're doing. And uh, it's definitely not me, uh, that's for sure. But I'm thankful for the people that do. Uh, but uh, keep that all in prayer, by the way. Uh, we're we're um, you know busting out at the seams here. We had our meeting a few weeks back on a Thursday night, kind of talking about our building project. But um, we really feel like in a similar way that Haggai says, it's time to build the temple to these guys. The Lord has really shown us it's time to build the rest of the church, the second part of this church, uh, to open up this sanctuary and build the children's wing. And uh, it's, it's challenging and expensive. Uh, it's amazing how expensive it is. You know, we, we, if you look at this building carefully, it's basically a warehouse. Tilt up concrete construction, just like what they're building in Sherwood on the road between Sherwood and Tualatin, all those warehouses there, same company that's building those, built this as just, now we put some nice carpet on the floor and, and uh, made it a nice warehouse, um, but it's not a fa fancy building. You know, a fancy church has tilted, you know, seating, theater seating and, and fancy stages and stuff. If you look at our stage closely, it's a plywood floor right here. There's no fancy surfaces. We just painted it black so you don't notice that it's just plywood um, and all this stuff. Like it's, it's a, we, we did this as cheaply as we knew how and that's how we're doing the next one, but it's amazing how much that's gonna cost and expensive. And, um, and so um, you start to go, man, is this even gonna work? Like, how are we gonna be able to do that? But that's where I'm reminded, you know, like this word that uh, he gives, be strong, Zerubbabel, you know, and Joshua uh, and all the people, the Lord says, I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. When they were, were building it, they were start, I think they were starting to get discouraged. And the Lord says, I'm with you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care of this. He did on our phase one of this building and he's gonna do that on phase two, I'm convinced. Even though it sometimes seems very impossible. Uh, but all that gives me great encouragement. Um, you know, he says, even as I, verse five, according to the word I coveted with you, when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Fear ye not. What a great Great word for the people of Israel. Um, um, now, um, the, the question that they were gonna raise, which, which temple's cooler? Is, is this one not as cool or beautiful or impressive? Um, and that's what they're gonna ask the old guys here. Um, but what's interesting here, um, the, the, it's like they asked the old guys and then, then said to the young guys, hey, don't worry, be strong, because the old guys are about to give us a really tough report. The old guys are about to say, this is nothing like the temple of Solomon. Um, uh, it's funny how the older we get, our perspective and, and our attitude changes. Um, and, um, you know, uh, a lot of people in our culture want to so desperately stay young. Have you guys noticed the obsession with trying to stay young? Um, I saw this uh, article, Bezos, um, who's one of the richest men in the world, in popular mechanics, he, uh, he's paying for a way to make humans immortal. Uh, 
Elon Musk, while he's using his money to take over Twitter, uh, Jeff Bezos um, is reported in this article to be funding an anti-aging organization. A new lab will have locations in California, England, and Japan. Its scientists include one luminary who won the Nobel Prize for research on how to age cells backwards. Um, and, and he's desperately doing that. This article had a picture of Bezos. I thought this was kind of an interesting, this, I, I'm not kidding. This was the uh, popular mechanics article picture that they put of him. I think he looks younger, do you? Um, uh, bright eyes and everything. But um, did you know there was a study done years ago that for every one hour you exercise, you gain one hour of lifespan. So some of you guys are working out, hey, that's pretty cool. I think, okay, you can spend an hour in the gym sweating and just have a stinky hour of working out or just go have a hamburger for an hour. Like, like which one, like, is it really better? I'm joking. Some of you are like looking deeply concerned. Um, <laughs> don't forget what the Bible says. First Timothy chapter four, for bodily exercise profiteth a little. <laughs> but godliness is profitable unto all things. Now, some of you workout freaks like, yeah, but the Bible says it does profit a little. Yep, but a little. Let's keep it all in perspective. Gravity will take effect. You will uh, end up uh, uh, dying someday. You cannot work out to stay immortal. And Bezos is gonna have to learn that lesson. Um, by the way, I don't think anybody with all this technology is gonna be able to change our lifespan. And I'll tell you why. Because God set the lifespan back in the antediluvian world. People lived to be 900 something years old. But after Noah and the flood, remember, the Lord defined and later said, okay, Abram, uh, I'm gonna make the, the age more like 120-ish is kind of the age that, that man will live at most. Um, but, um, but we're no longer gonna live like that. And I think it's the Lord who sets the lifespan of humanity. I don't think science is gonna change that. Um, that's my biblical assessment of that. But um, it's more important to have Christ uh, than like, cause some people say, Brett, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but it's more about having Christ in that temple. And we have to kind of keep it all in perspective. Um, so the old men were all like, yeah, but it's not like the good old days. We're gonna see that. Um, what, is, what did the temple of Solomon look like? Let me show you a few scriptures that are kind of helpful in this. First Samuel 16, seven. But the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or the height of his stature because I refused him. For the Lord sees not as man seeth. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Um, remember this temple being your body? Um, it's interesting because so many people focus on the outside of the body, but God looks at the heart of man. Don't forget that when we're talking about the temple and the glory of the temple, and they were so impressed with Solomon's temple and the way it looked. Um, but it, the reason Zerubbabel's temple, as we learned on Sunday, was gonna be more glorious than Solomon's was because of what was in the temple. Jesus Christ would walk into Zerubbabel's temple. And if it's Christ in you, uh, your body, then man, don't be discouraged. Your temple is glorious. And it's not because you're you know, 3% body fat. Um, or because you, you know, got a uh, Botox injection uh, that makes your temple awesome. Nope, it's because you have Christ in you. The temple, your body, don't be discouraged about the outside. Uh, the Lord looks at the heart. First Chronicles 115, pardon me, Second Chronicles 115, says, and the king made silver and gold at Jerusalem as plenteous as stones, and cedar trees made he as the sycamore trees that are in the veil for abundance. During the time of Solomon building the temple, gold and silver became like rocks on the ground. That's how much gold they had in uh, Israel. In 2 Chronicles 2, 
one through two, Solomon determined to build the house for the name of the Lord and a house for his kingdom. And Solomon told uh, out three score and 10,000 men. How many is that? 70,000 men, that's the word, to bear burdens and four score thousand men, that's 80,000 men to hew in the mountain and 3,600 to oversee them. <laughs> so like the, the foreman on the job, there were 3,600 foremen. Uh, there were 80,000 uh, hewers of stone in the mountains. One of the things about Solomon's temple that's interesting, should have brought some pictures of this, but Solomon's temple, they, they chiseled the stones up in the mountains and then brought the stones down. And if you go look at these today, because some of the Solomon's temple stones are still under the ground, you know, because of archeological building up of civilizations, you can go down in what's called the rabbi's tunnel in Jerusalem. And you get down to the Solomon level stones that are still stacked there um, that, you know, date 2000 years before Christ. Um, uh, or I should say a thousand years before Christ. But all that to say, um, what's amazing to me is you can't even get a blade of a knife to squeeze between the stones. The, some of the stones are bigger than a school bus. So picture hauling from, how would we do this today? You take a stone that's as big as a school bus and you haul it down from the mountains and then you set it in place, but it's already chiseled perfectly to match the next stone because they didn't want the sound of the chisel there on the Temple Mount. But when you look at the stones, they fit perfectly. How would we do that? Like we'd be hard pressed to do that with our you know, uh, 3D printing machines now that they're doing with concrete. Have you seen that? Where they actually have 3D printers now that do concrete and they uh, build houses with a 3D printer. Like it's amazing what's going on out there right now. But even with our technology, we still don't know how they did it. Uh, it's still a mystery uh, how Solomon's stones were cut in like this. Well, part of it was there were 70,000 uh, slaves and 80,000 hewers of stone. And it was a massive project. So no wonder these old guys are like, yeah, you guys, these little rocks you got here, they're nothing compared to the days of Solomon. Um, more history, just, I hope I'm not boring you, but this is great. Second Chronicles three, verses three through seven. It says, now these are the things wherein Solomon was instructed for the building of the house of God. The, the length by cubits after the first measure was three score cubits or 90 feet. The breadth, 20 cubits, that's 30 feet. And the porch was in the front of the house and the length of it was according to the breadth of the house, 20 cubits and the height was 120. And he overlaid it with, within with pure gold. Can you imagine that? The whole overlay on the inside of Solomon's temple was just pure gold. And the greater house he sealed with fir tree, um, which he overlaid then with fine gold. So the beams on the inside had, were big fir tree beams but they had gold covered uh, beams and, um, and set there on palm trees and chains. And he garnished the house with precious stones for beauty. And the gold was gold of Peravim, the purest gold. He overlaid the, also the house and the beams and the posts and the walls thereof and the doors thereof with gold and graved cherubims on the wall. These angels were um, depicted in the gold on the walls, um, big with lots of gold. That's the idea. Zerubbabel's time, does anybody know how much gold they used in Zerubbabel's temple? Zip, zero, zilch. No wonder the old guys are weeping. <laughs> it's nothing like the old days. That's where, that's where we're going here. So um, we go on to verse six. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. 
and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. So um, um, interesting, we know that was fulfilled when Jesus came and we do know the earth shook when Jesus came, right? If you know your Bible, remember when Jesus died on the cross, the earth shook. Um, so you could say it was fulfilled in his first coming. But there is kind of an interesting um, sort of depiction of uh, this coming from the millennial kingdom. Because when you read about the millennial kingdom in the tribulation period, the earth is gonna shake more like what it's saying here. So some see the connection of the millennial coming and the millennial temple of Ezekiel. Now you say, well, Brett, that's a problem because that temple's been long gone and so this temple's not the same. It's arguable that one of the foundation stones is still there from both Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple. Quiz time, let's see if anybody can know this one. Where is that one of those original stones found um, uh, on the Temple Mount that, that's very likely from the Zerubbabel's temple or even Solomon's temple? Anybody remember? Somebody said, I think they said, it's, it's, it. some say it's the Dome of the Rock. And when you go in the Dome of the Rock, and it's not a mosque, people say Dome of the Rock mosque. Nope, it's the Dome of the Rock shrine. Even the Muslims call it the shrine. The mosque is Al-Aqsa Mosque, this is next to that in the gray dome. But the Dome of the Rock, they claim that was original stone from Solomon's temple. It's possible, but I don't believe that's it. Um, if, if you ask others, and these are some experts, and there's people that disagree, there's this wide open space on the Temple Mount. And everybody just kind of leaves it alone. And except for Ramadan, you'll see you know, uh, thousands of Muslims bowing on their mats, praying toward Mecca on this wide open space. But there's this little gazebo. If you look at a, a picture of the Temple Mount, you see the big dome, golden dome. Look just to the right. If you're looking from the Mount of Olives, look to the right. There's this little gazebo. It's, it's a rock, you know, old ancient gazebo that's out there in the middle of this little court, big courtyard that's just off by itself. And then underneath that little gazebo, there's a little place that the stone is what they believe is original from the era of Solomon. And they believe that could likely be where Solomon's temple is. Well, Brad, how do you know? They, if they, th they think it was where the Dome of the Rock is. Why, why would you say it's over here? Interesting question you should ask. <laughs> there's, a, there's a description in the Bible, and I'm just gonna say this quickly. But there's a description in the Bible where the priest could look from the holy place through the, the, uh, the, the, the curtain of the holy place, through the door of the temple, up the Mount of Olives, and you could look through the east gate. So the, the, the gate of the temple or the door of the temple lines up with the east gate. And then you could see the highest point on Mount Scopus or the Mount of Olives. You could call it whatever you want. Um, the reason they called it Scopus by the Romans is the Romans would go up there and scope things out. I'm not kidding, that's, that's Latin for scoping. Uh, but, um, but that's the highest point. And so there are some newer uh, experts that are kind of saying, Interesting, they don't believe the temple sat right where the Dome of the Rock is. They believe the temple sat just to the right of that. And interestingly, that big open space that just sits there with nothing on it right now. What's gonna happen in the tribulation? Um, there's gonna be a brokering of peace and the Jews are gonna be able to build the temple on the Temple Mount. And if you believe the Dome of the Rock was where that was, then you're gonna have to tear down the Dome of the Rock to make that happen. However, if you don't believe that that's where it is, you believe it's the Dome of the Spirit there, that's a little rock that's wide open, um, you say, well, Brett, that's a problem because um, the temple and its outer courtyard area, that's too big to fit in that area. 
Wait a minute though. Do you guys remember they're gonna leave something out of the, the tribulation temple? Does anybody remember what they're gonna leave out? They're leaving out the court of the Gentiles and there's plenty of room to build the temple there on the Temple Mount, right where that Dome of the Spirit sit. I think there's some interesting stuff going on with that. And I believe we'll be in heaven. So we probably won't even see that happen. We'll be in heaven, marriage feast of the lamb. But when that happens, I can see the scenario where the temple is gonna be rebuilt right there on that open porch area of the Dome of the Spirits as it's called. I didn't mean to go into that. Now I'm running really late, so let's go. <laughs> so um, all that to say, uh, back to Haggai chapter two. Um, he, he says there in, um, in verse six, seven, the earth will be shaken and then the King Jesus will come and uh, rule and reign. And uh, I'll just quickly remind you, Matthew 24 um, talks about, you know, the tribulation and the earthquaking in the heavens and the, and the earth. Uh, but, but when Christ comes with power and great glory, this is what Matthew 24, 29 through 30, jot that down in your notes. Um, also, um, Hebrews 12, 25 through 27, jot that down in your notes too, where the earth shakes when the Lord comes back. This is probably what Haggai chapter two is talking about. Well, verse eight, it goes on. It says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. We talked about that on Sunday. Well, um, it goes on there now in verse 10. And in verse 10, we have the third word from the Lord. This should have probably been a chapter break technically, uh, if you ask me. But it's, it's, this is the word from the Lord and we're gonna call this the December uh, word from the Lord. The first one was September. The second one was called uh, October. This one's called December, verse 10. In the four and 20th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, ask now the priest concerning the law saying, if one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. What, what are they asking? <laughs> Um, the pre, there, I guess there was a debate on, you know, if you're clean and your garment brushes up against somebody who touched a dead body, are you now suddenly unclean? Uh, aren't you glad we're no longer under these laws? Do I need to remind you of the 613 laws? Um, that, uh, <laughs> I, like, I like showing you this. And, and you say, well, Brett, what are they asking Haggai? Well, let's pull this one out. If you pull that one out, um, <laughs> everyone under a roof of the corpse is unclean. Numbers chapter 19, verse 14. That's one of the 613 laws. And that's one of the ones they're asking Haggai about. And they're, they're trying to figure out. And this is, this is the frustration of uh, the, the, the laws of Israel. Um, you know, and they're asking, what about holiness? And does unholiness pass by touch? Um, and when you're sick, can, you know, um, it's, it, it's an interesting thing because uh, the Lord does sort of refer to sin as sort of if you catch a disease. Um, you know, uh, when you're sick, can you catch health? Like, have you thought about that? You can catch a cold when you're healthy, but when you're, health, or when you're sick, can you catch health? Uh, the answer is no. And so that's the question, like, man, if we just touch something that was touched by a dead body, does that make us unclean? And um, they're trying to get, get down to the nitty gritty about this but um, they, they determined, yes, it is unclean. 
Um, now you say, Brett, that's depressing. It is, unless you realize Jesus is the one who did away with the law in the sense that he fulfilled the law. We are no longer under that law. So this is good news for us. Verse 14, then answered Haggai and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord, and so is every work um, of their hands that which they offer there is unclean. In other words, everything they do is unclean. This is what I was trying to say a few weeks ago when I was saying everything's sinful. We're all sinful. And even if you think you're good, you're actually not, you're sinful. And everything's defiled um, by sin. And, and uh, that's something we need to remember. Um, it, it's, it's just uh, um, part of the human condition. Um, and we're all things that are defiled and unclean. That's the, why the gospel is so important. Well, verse 15, and now I pray you consider from this day and upward from before the stone was laid upon a stone of the temple of the Lord, since those days um, uh, were when one came to a heap of 20 measures, uh, there were but 10. When one came up to the press fat for to draw out, a 50, uh, of, out 50 vessels out of the press, there were but 20. This is referring back to verse six in chapter one. Remember when they would grow their fruit, but they didn't get the same fruit and they weren't satisfied by their fruit of their vessel or their farms and what have you. This is going back to that. Verse 17, I smote you with a blasting and with mildew and with a hail and in all labors of your hands, yet ye turned out, turned not to me, saith the Lord. Do you guys see some of the hail today? Uh, I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if Wednesday night I'm teaching this verse? All <laughs> That'd be great because it's really loud in here when it gets hail. But anyway, it didn't happen. Verse uh, 18, consider now from this day and upward from the four and 20th day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. There it is, consider again. Think about it to action. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, yet, uh, yet as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not brought forth uh, from this day, I will bless you. So once they started being obedient, the Lord says, now I'm gonna, uh, from the day you started to work on the temple, it's like clockwork, I'm gonna start blessing you. Um, and I, I think that's true for us too. If you feel like you're, you're kind of at battle against things in your life and things aren't working out well, and you discern that it's something you've been disobedient in, the Lord's saying, I wanna bless your socks off, but I'm not gonna bless you until you do what I've asked you to do. Maybe it's a business venture you've started. Maybe it's uh, schoolwork that you're trying to complete. Maybe it's um, a career that you're trying to develop or a family you're trying to grow. And you just feel like, man, I just feel like I'm stumbling along the way. Do what God's called you to do, be obedient to his word. And then as soon as you start that, it's like clockwork, the same good things will start to happen, fruitfulness and blessing. And now we come to the final word, uh, which is also December, word number uh, four from the Lord, December uh, verse 20. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai in the fourth and 20th day of the, of the month saying, and this month would be, of course, December again. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth and I will overthrow the, thrones of the throne of kingdoms and I will destroy the strength of kingdoms of the heathen and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them and the horses and their riders shall come down everyone by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, I will take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatil, and uh, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet 
for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Um, what, what's this about him being a signet? The word signet there in the King James from the Hebrew word, it means Zerubbabel, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put power upon you. The word signet is like you have the signet of power. Um, Zerubbabel's name is an interesting name that has a lot of interesting implications. Zerubbabel, some people argue um, that Zerubbabel will be a key figure in the millennial kingdom. Uh, building the temple of Ezekiel. Some people argue that because of what uh, Haggai prophesied here in verses 20 through 23. Um, Zerubbabel's name, by the way, is in both genealogies of Jesus, Matthew, uh, Joseph's genealogy, and then the book of Luke, Mary's genealogy. Zerubbabel's in both of those. So Zerubbabel's kind of an interesting character in the Bible. Um, and I think we're gonna see Bubba perhaps in the millennial kingdom. And you'll know who he is because you studied the book of Haggai. Um, but um, what are the lessons of this book? Uh, we're, we're, dis, we're disobedient, thus we're discontented. And the Lord will lovingly correct us. So learn to be content with what you have. Be obedient to what God wants us to do and repent and turn and start doing the works that God's called you to do. And then see what the Lord will do from there. That's a good lesson from Haggai. Lord, I pray that you'd bless us as we close our Bibles tonight. Uh, that you would help these truths to reverberate in our minds, our thinking, uh, to be obedient to your call. Lord, I pray that you'd stir up the gift within each one of my brothers and sisters listening to this study, that the things that you've called us to do and to be, that we'd be faithful to do what your word says. So bless this congregation. May this bring good fruit in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.